You guys hear that? That's what we call reverb in the biz. You might be wondering why I have such bad reverb right now, and that's because I'm in George's apartment. That's right, I went on vacation and drove all the way to the East Coast to see George. He is not here right now. He's off helping some friend do something, which, knowing him, probably something vaguely suspicious, but I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted to stick a little intro on the front end of this, uh, this uh, interview with Howdy. Um, this is the second time we're going to be speaking with him, and I have to say it was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. My mind was blown wide open so many times, I'm not sure I've fully recovered. It's a difficult topic. Howdy's new book, X of the Cave, is about death, which is one of the hardest things to talk about uh, and take seriously. Well, actually, everybody takes it seriously, but it's hard to address without getting into some really dicey territory because people have their beliefs, religion, all that sort of thing, and those things are very, very important. But Howdy is what we would likely describe as the blackest of sheep. He's, he's way out there with his thought. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy or even that he has a dark personality or that he's negative. It just means that he's interested in getting to the core of things. I think a great lead up to this interview was the reading of Jonathan Livingston Seagull that I did for the patrons. Uh, you can access that for as little as $2 on Patreon. Um, and you can just listen to it and then delete your account. I don't care. I mean, I love having patrons, but if you just want to get it, uh, just send us two bucks on Patreon. You can go listen to the whole thing. And you might be enticed. I'm going to include uh, an excerpt from it at the end of the interview. So stick around after the music and you'll get a little taste of, uh, of that story. Anyway, I don't want to go on too long here because the reverb is atrocious. And you know what? I told him not to put it in this room, but he did because it's where his desk is and... Uh, he is he is he knows his ways so he likes to live in big echoey rooms i guess but we're going to treat the room um we're going to get it set up so that it doesn't have such a big issue with this i even tried recording in here with a blanket over my head and pillows around the microphone it didn't help oh i mean it helped a little bit but it didn't fix it so we're going to get that solved but anyway he's not here so i thought i'd say hello uh yeah i hope you enjoy the interview Please stick around to the end. It's it's very interesting. We get into all kinds of stuff about Egypt and what's under the pyramids and all this interesting stuff. Um, Howdy's a very knowledgeable guy, and he's he's one of my favorite people to interview. So, with all that being said, I'll let this I'll let the uh, I'll let the uh, information carry you away to another world, and uh, yeah. So, give me a little update. Like, uh, I've been watching all your videos and listening to what you got to say and all that good stuff. Um, where, are, where are you... Like mentally, what are you thinking about these days? Because I know the book was a long process and, you know, certainly like it's not where you are at present, right? So give us a little run in. Well, you know, it's, uh, it took a lot of my time, obviously. And it was, um, and I really, my, my, my mental picture was in, in April that by November, the world is going to be nuts. That was my feeling. So I needed to get the project done 
I had September the 1st as a deadline, which is a pretty intense time frame to write a book. I could, you know, write an entire book, but I, I felt I needed to have it available because I didn't know what the world was going to look like after November the 1st. And unfortunately, it is playing out exactly like I felt. Really? So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a combination of, you know, dealing with what I have to deal with, doing these interviews, working on my own, because the book is really written for me. It's written as a, as a guide for me in preparation for the, the, the transition for death and, and whatnot. And if it's helpful to others, that's a bonus. And, uh, and at the same time, keep an eye on where things are in the world so that you don't get surprised by waking up one morning and all of a sudden like, oh, well, look at that. Hmm. And what's the, what's the name of the book for people listening? It's called Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. Great. And it, it, it's, yeah, it started out as an, I started it as a Plato's Cave book. Um, because people had really liked those videos and um, and then it just kind of morphed into there's kind of a zeitgeist going on right now about discussions of reincarnation is this a prison is this our, is our soul somehow trapped here and it all kind of merged together with the Plato's cave stuff and became became what the book became and uh, yeah yeah well on our show obviously it's got a, it's got a death-centric title right it's called we talk about dead people which is which is kind of funny because you know we we put that title on there as a as a reference to history right but death is something we all have to face and it's something that people don't really like to think about so in order to shape this interview to be as as accessible as possible i'd like to back out just a touch <laughs> and instead of going directly into the book uh i'd like to get a uh, Howdy McCoskey State of the Union, if we can. Like, what what do you see presently as far as, like, where this all fits in in history? Um, where we... I'm really glad you listened to the, the Aeon Byte interview because I want to ask you about that, too. But, like, where are we? And from your perspective, you know, you predicted things are going to get crazy, right? How crazy have things gotten? How much crazier are they going to get? Etc. Um, you know, again, for me, as you're, of course, you have a history background in your channel and, and history for me was a, a big part of my, my journey in my life. And I think it's, it's, it's one of the many subjects that needs to be examined in, in depth. I, I don't think you can actually go into any spiritual or philosophical areas if you ignore history, because you have to kind of get an idea of what the, at least what the narrative says is our past. If you don't really have a good understanding of at least what the narrative is, and it doesn't mean that that's, you need to know it because it's true. You need to know it because that's what those who are in charge want you to believe. And if you don't get that understanding behind you, I think it's very easy then to get sucked into all kinds of traps. Uh, and I think that that's a religion and, um, and the spiritual movement does gets a lot of people because they just don't know their history, right? They don't really know their history. They don't know their science. They don't know their geography. They don't know, they don't know have a good basis of all of these areas. So it's, that part is important. When we look at the subject matter itself, which is, if we had to nutshell it down to like a sentence, right, it would be the standard idea uh, that everyone holds on to is that this is a world made by a loving God, a creator who cares about us, has created this world for our growth, for our uh, learning as a school so that our soul can evolve, rejoin, and, uh, and at the same time have a place where all of our wishes can come true. That's the normal message. 
my message matches a lot of other what you might call fringe groups in history and and ancient, very ancient, uh, original, uh, you might call doctrine from like ancient Egypt or the Maya, um, native Indian tribes that this is not a realm created as a loving, wonderful place, that it's actually a realm created as a prison. It's a realm created as a, as a giant deception. And the only job we have is not to, not to so much enjoy it, it's to understand it. And the message of, as we'll go through this interview, and as, if people are looking into the book, it's going to sound negative. Like it's going to sound, people are going to say, this is sounding really negative to me. I don't like this in a sense, but it's important because if we're talking about finding truth and we're talking about finding your own personal power, which is really what it's all about is finding what's that power you have inside of you that you have not even accessed yet. And the only way you get to it is to become disillusioned. We have to rip apart the belief structures that everyone's always held, all the, all the hopeful ideas and rip those away and see what's left. What's something that we can't take away? There's truth. But the walls, the walls we've all built, including myself, I've had walls for 20 years that have had to come down in the last year or two that I didn't even know I had. You know, mm-hmm. it's part of the process. You keep you keep ripping down your own walls. And every one of them is hard to see through. But every time you remove another one, you have an you have another clear view of something much more, much more amazing but it's hard to go through it to get to those points. Well, man, I have to admit, like, I like you a lot. When I was reading the book, I was like, I want to fight Howdy so bad. He's so negative about all this stuff. (laughs) I was like, he's got to, he's got to bring it down a touch, man. But then I kept reading and I was like, but I kind of see his point here. Like he's saying that the pro it's like, you know, you listen to the interview with Miguel talking about the black pill and how, you know, the black pill is just another phrase for, getting rid of those things that are in your way of seeing the truth. And, uh, I, you know, the book, it does come across a little bit like, you know, it, it does come across a little bit negative, but the funny thing is, like, you just have to keep pushing a little bit because, you know, those initial precepts, like, we're living in, a, we're living in hell. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, geez, like, that's so big. But, you know, it... But there's there's a great example. Why don't people ask that question? Mm -hmm. Not saying anyone should believe it or disbelieve it. Why don't we even ask that question? Why are we so afraid to step back and say, why don't we take a look at reality really honestly with no filter? What do I find? Because it's not what I think or what you think. It's what each individual person will find in their own experience, right? I've researched this for years, of course, but it comes from my own experience. And so that's part of it is, you know, it's it's being okay to look at things and be okay to not have an answer that makes you happy to have an answer that's well wow this is the way it is okay because then at least you know what to do if you actually can find out and i'm saying right now to everybody i don't know for sure what happens after we die i have some ideas but i'm not sure i don't know for sure how reality was created or exactly why i've got a thesis and ideas for things to think about but you should think about it yeah well, speaking of things you can't explain and not understanding everything that's going on in the world, I want to share something with you. Look what popped up five minutes before we got on here. Okay. In my newsfeed. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Keanu Reeves has quit Leonardo DiCaprio's The Devil in the White City, which, as we all know, is a oh. series about the World's Fair, which is Howdy, one of Howdy's research points. 
I thought that was hmm. extraordinary. <laughs> what are the odds of that popping up today? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, there, there's so much. There is so much going on right now on a day-to-day basis on in so many areas that you actually can't keep up. Yeah, I, I I do a pretty good job keeping up with trying to track what's going on. And I know I'm like in many cases weeks behind because it's literally just. And, and that's the thing you're asking, where are things going? I think the reason for me that I think we're going to see such a difficult mess coming up is partially because of what I think the realm actually is. And secondly, is because there are so many balls in the air right now. Like, and from a world perspective, there's like 20 balls being juggled and eventually they're going to, some of them are going to start to fall. We don't know which ones they're going to be, but you just can't keep juggling 20 balls constantly, you know? And so that's what I'm seeing. It's not like we got one issue going on. We got like 15 and it's like, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Well, when we last talked, it was one big thing, right? It was just COVID, 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 COVID. And now it's like, there's like 15 different COVIDs going on. You got the president talking about Armageddon. Uh, people getting freaked out about all this, all that stuff. You know, I see this all as like something like a bluff, but it also looks like they're reusing all of these scripts again and again and again. Um, you know, like it's like Miguel said on the interview, didn't we do the Cold War already? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, although this one is not going to be, they're not, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to finish this one off. This is this, this time they're going to, they're playing it out one way or another. They're playing the next stage in this game. And what is and, the next uh, stage? That's hard to say, you know, it's, um, you don't know whether you need something small, something big, but they have a, they have a, an idea of where it's leading them, right? The, if there is some sort of conflict, it's the conflict isn't the, isn't the important thing. It's what does the conflict create afterwards? What's, what's the thing they want? And we can start to see what they've been creating is this very controlled, very, um, very hierarchical society where the people at the top tell everybody else what to do and what to think, right? We're seeing that you see that in media platforms, you see that in everywhere. And so it somehow there's going to be more and more of that created. And an easy way to do that is, I mean, you have a war breakout, like a real actual world war breakout, even if it only lasts a month. During that month, of course, you can just, you can bring in any law you want instantaneously from the standpoint of, you know, we're in a, we're in a global conflict. And you just, when the conflict ends, you just don't take the law back. Yeah. Pretty easy. Well, that's it. It's, you know, from my perspective, it's just sort of this fractal truth where they create a chaos and then they create some kind of an order that comes out of that, right? Okay, so they've done that again mm-hmm. and again and again. World War One, World War Two. we got this nice period where we had all these decades that were carefully separated out, you know, so everything was different 10 years at a time and then... Once we hit twenty mm-hmm. uh, two thousand and into twenty twenty, it's like it feels like everything's kind of been the same, and so it feels like they're almost pulling something out of the ether that they'd shelved for a yeah. while. I think that's a really good point you just made. Is if you sort of look at, okay, so I'm fifty now, so I I, I was born actually in like sixty nine, so I I lived through whatever five decades, and like you say, each decade was really different until you hit about. 2000 right just after the september 11th thing things aren't really different much like one of the big uh, changes was fashion fashion people dressed differently in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s all of a sudden if if you took somebody off the street in like 2005 exactly as they are and dropped them on like new york right today they would fit right in Mm -hmm. 
there, there's like there was like, like it would be ex almost exactly the same. They probably wouldn't feel lost or confused, or everything would look almost the same to them. But if you did that, if you took somebody from like 1964 and dropped them into 1988, they would stand out, you know, or, or they would say, "Wow, what's that hippie doing still floating around our world?" Or you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, something. Something has literally got frozen in time for about 20 years and everything. It's music. It's, it's movies. It's, it's everything. Nothing has, nothing has evolved, changed, become different. It's like been one static flat line for 20 years. And it's like, all of that is like just bubbled up now and it's all just boiling over. And um, so to me, it makes my book and the things I talk about even more important because it's like, well, now we're not, it kind of game time is over, you know, mm -hmm. 1980s, 1990s, uh, Tony Robbins and the, and all of the uh, spiritual movement and the, you can live your dreams and just think, think happy thoughts and whatever that only works in a world where you have no problem getting up in the morning and having your breakfast and going to work. And your biggest issue of the day is that your neighbor accidentally threw some trash on your lawn. And so maybe I have to talk with them tomorrow. The kind of situations where you're talking about food shortages, power grid, power grid knockouts yeah warfare on your doorstep uh, you know that's a totally different ballpark and the the let's let's call it the pathways to walk are different have to be different as well so it's it's one thing that's really interesting about right now i think is that all of those old pathways that were might have been valid 30 or 40 years ago aren't valid anymore and in essence what's happening is we have to rebuild a brand new structure of being and interacting with this reality in a totally because it's changed it's completely different we have to become if we keep trying to be like the old way we're gonna that's not going to be another wall so we're actually building a, almost like a brand new spiritual tradition going forward maybe that'll last for the next 500 a thousand years which is actually quite interesting yeah it's gonna it's a lot to watch and it's a lot to hang on to and at the risk of sounding like uh, well, I'm just going to quote one of the bad guys, so to speak. The phrase ride the tiger really pops up for me, uh, especially in this time where it's like, it really does feel like we're aboard some chaotic ride that's completely out of control and that could absolutely, you know, or hurt us or kill us. Ride the tiger just feels like the right phrase for this time. Um, and it feels one of the things that stuck out to me reading the beginning of the book was talking about how these powers that are above us seem to harness our energy through fear. And one thing that's been popping up in my feed for the people I listen to from, we're talking like, you know, people at like Miguel's level on down all the way to the bottom is people are starting to notice that they're always worried. They're always in a state of fear and it appears to be uh, synthetic. Like it's brought out of nowhere. Like here's a story about how a you know, here's a pit bull that killed four people or something like that. And you're looking at it, you're like, oh, my God. Like, and it, it has the same patterns every time, no matter what feed you're on. It's like, look at the chaos in the cities. Look at the chaos out here. You know, with this with this situation, you mm -hmm. know, say with guns or something. And they, they just throw stuff at you. And it just it feels like we're aboard something that's. That's figured out we're not its friend or that's figured out we've figured out we're not friends. <laughs> Does that make sense? Well, that's where this is where I think we link into the to the world fairs, even though I don't talk about the history stuff too much anymore. But I mean, we are we are in a reset. We can try to pretend that we're not, but a reset is going on right now. Mm. And a reset is energetic. It, it has nothing to do with governments and financial systems and whatever else. That's all just pieces of it. It's energetic. It's an energetic thing. And so the last one we had was probably right at the time of the fairs. So we're dealing with 
whatever happened then is happening now. And again, it kind of makes the study of that time and those buildings and, and, and those fairs important if we can try to be one step ahead of what's going on now. Like what is, what is, like you say, this is not random. This is not just some um, bunch of coincidences bumping together all at once. This is a very coordinated idea and it's got an, it's got an end game to it. And um a big part of us is just deciding what's the end, what end game do we want? That's all that really matters. What end game do like do you, like you and I both want personally? And our job is to just walk that no matter what the rest of the world does, no matter what the rest of society does. We choose our pathway and we just we walk it. And that's what's so hard for the average person. When when things get tough, it's easy to change your path. It's easy to Oh boy! If I keep doing that, it's gonna it's, it, things aren't gonna be good. So I better I better follow the crowd. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of um, a lot of personal commitment to be able to say this is my path, whatever it is. This is this is what is important to me, and it doesn't matter what the world does around me. I'm gonna keep walking it. It's a it's a powerful thing, but it's hard sometimes for people to do it. Well, certainly one of the things, the biggest tricks that this world has to play on us is distraction. You know, and you can you can get into your mind. You know, this is one thing you did talk about in your book a lot is like how everything's a distraction from really getting to the core. And I think that's probably why I felt slightly triggered reading the book was you've gone a lot further. You know, you're older than me. You've got a lot more experience. You've been thinking about this kind of thing for a lot longer. Um, and the last time we talked, you know, I loved I, I loved just examining your thought process with all of this stuff because you really are just relentless. It's like, no. I want the, I want the truth. I want to get to the bottom of this thing. And uh, mm -hmm. of course, that makes you a black sheep like like Miguel. You know, we talked about that when the interview was black sheep. Um, when you are relentless, when you want to get to the core of that, not only do you find the resistance of the thing you're examining, but you find s like serious resistance from people around you that you love because you're yeah. you're you're on fire and you're burning them, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I would say most of all the friends I've had in the course of my life are gone. Yeah. Uh, over the, over the last 10 to 15 years, they've, they've all just disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, I I've gotten too. Yeah. I, I'm too hot for them to, to handle. So I have very, very few people in my world. I can rely. I can feel I can call, Oh, this is a friend. This is someone it, it's, it's funny. Now the close, some of the best friends I have now are people who I've met like yourself that I've done interviews with and I've had long-term interviews with who we, we think quite clearly we have, it's like a really good rapport that we have during the, during the conversation. And it's like, we can continue that when the interviews are over. And so, um, you know, I'm still finding people that I'm connected to. It's just, I don't find as many anymore that are live anywhere close to where I live that can drop by for coffee. And, and, and that part of it, I miss, right. I miss having like normal friends um, in your life, but that's, that's just the way things go. Like you say, when you move and when you move in a direction, uh, it's not the norm and that's way off the norm. Like someone like Miguel, uh, who, you could, call, you could call him a Gnostic. I mean, realistically, I mean, he is, he's, he's so well-versed in, in, in the ideas of Gnosis and whatnot. So he's kind of a heretic to the rest of the world, but you've read my book. I'm almost like a heretic to, to the Gnostics even. Like I would even potentially be on the outside of, uh, like they might kick me out of their club, you know, because I'm literally, uh, I, I would still be, I would still be classified as, as a group, but I'd be like, I'd be fringe for them. 
you know, mm-hmm. I'm more like a Cathar almost than them. So it makes it challenging, but it's also, it's also great when the emails come in of people who've read the book and I'm, and I'm, I've been wonderfully surprised by how many have picked it up, uh, even though it's only in a PDF form yet, and it's not print, print book yet for another week or two, but just saying, thank you so much for writing this, because this is, I've been thinking like this for like 10 years, but I, I haven't been able to find anything that I could read that that shows it to me and they're saying like like thank you they're you know they're, or the, i don't have the words for it i had this feeling and now your book is helping me give words to the feeling so that's that's been the most wonderful thing for me is how many people feel like it's helped give them a bit of a voice to something they've always felt they've been a black sheep too and now they're, they're now they don't feel alone yeah well howdy i see you as like jonathan livingston seagull like you're just have you ever read that book yeah I just did a reading of it for my patrons. Um, It was one of the favorite things I've ever done. And, you know, I just kept thinking of you and Miguel and the other guys that I look at. I'm like, man, you know, we just got to give them a shot here because we're just seagulls like waiting for the chum, you know, Um, we're we're just flying around. And then there's this one dude like Howdy or Miguel who's just like over there practicing flying. And, you know, it's like one of the things about the book and you know one of the things about even examining like i would consider the world's fair discussion to be even less triggering than a discussion about death especially a book about death you know um one mm-hmm. of the things about that is like we have to allow our thought explorers to work and it's so hard these days because even just taking a side on a binary issue uh, or creating a binary issue out of something you know like if you say well i don't think we should go to war people are just like oh how dare you you're not a you're not a patriot. Don't you care about your country? And you're like, well, consider if we didn't. Well, then you have to deal with like a zombie horde trying to, you know, keep you from going over there and flying. And, you know, the reason I did Jonathan Livingston Seagull as a reading, I've only done two. I did The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, and I did Jonathan Livingston Seagull because they're very much similar in a way. It's about people breaking out of this system. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you might you might be interested. Uh, Miguel and I, Miguel's doing an interview of me in uh, two weeks. Great, great. I'm gonna love yeah, that. Yeah, so that's gonna be darn interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and like I say, your interview with him was was so good, and and it's really good example of the work you're doing on your channel. And I'm actually just saying this openly. I hope people who don't know your channel really well, who are here watching it now, go watch some other interviews and things that are on here because it is, there's a lot of really good stuff, and I just want to make sure people hear that that it is actually you have you do have a really good podcast running so um well maybe what i should do uh for everybody is maybe i should just give a quick chapter overview of the book so they can at least hear all the subjects obviously we're not getting into all these subjects here but just a quick one minute overview so at least everybody's heard you know i gotta say okay there's aaron talking about this book well what the hell's in the book okay well (laughs) here's what's in it here's what's in it for the for the wall-breaking experience. Uh, chapter one is all about sort of an overview of this idea of a, of, of a creator being, what kind of creator being is it? What is reincarnation? Is it a place of food harvesting? And specifically this idea of memory wipes, this idea of not remembering anything when we return to lives. Chapter two is all about Plato's cave and specifically what's missing in Plato's cave, because I figure the, I, I feel the allegory has more missing than it does actually say anything. Chapter three is origin stories. What do the Cathars, the Gnostics, Robert Monroe, Castaneda say about the creation of this place? 
Um, and there's three small chapters on some near-death experiences, a death action plan, and the recapitulation. I have a novel chapter where I try to put this into a different format for people. Then I go into movies where I talk about Dark City and Westworld and, and a number of other uh, what you might call Plato's cave-like stories. Uh, some more near-death experiences. I talk about prayer, spiritual warfare, lucid dreaming, try to discuss this idea of a soul. I mean, if my book says exiting a soul trap, well, what is a soul? That's a really good question to even discuss, right? And then I end with two chapters on the Cathars because uh, they are such an interesting group to discuss when it comes to this topic and, and so little is known about them. And I was really trying to dig into what can we figure out about the Cathars and did they really know something or not? And then I end with a, a look into Castaneda's uh, active side of infinity and some stuff on the astral realms and what's going to happen after we, we we do die because I hate books. And this is just me personally. I hate books that have a really interesting uh, amount of information. And then you get to the last chapter and it's just like, uh, well, thanks for reading. I hope you had a really good time. And it's like, <laughs> give me something, you know? I've been reading all this way. Give me something to hold on to to really. Th and so that's what I wanted to do. I said, I wanted to give my last chapter something that I want people to finish it and go, okay, what am I going to do with this material? And that's what I did with the last one. A whole lot of stuff in, in that that I squeezed in there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I'm the same way. Like sometimes I get to the end of these big spiritual books. I'm like, what did you actually say though, dude? <laughs> like, like we, we sat here for four hours. Or remember, I used to hate those documentaries you would watch where they would, you know, come, oh, Stonehenge uh, uncovered. We found the secret of Stonehenge. Oh, cool. Then you watch the one hour. There's nothing. Yeah. They just, they show you some stuff. They show you they, uh, some stones and whatever. And then they just end the documentary. Well, what? You just lied to me at the start of the documentary. If you're going to have something like that, give me, give me something at the end. Yeah. And uh, so I just did, I just don't want to do that with my stuff. If I'm going to, I, I want to at least end with something useful. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I admire about how you think uh, is, is uh, you think in terms of processes, as far as I can tell, instead of concepts. And one thing that one joke, and it's not, it's not really a joke. It's not very nice to say this, I guess, but one of the funniest things in the world to me is the flat earth podcast, because they, they just stop making it because there's only so many times you can say the earth is flat. You know, like, it's like, okay, so we're sitting here talking about how the earth is flat. Okay, there's no curvature. All right, all right. I hear you. I hear you. But what's next? Because that's good. That's like good for you. Sure. Maybe you're convincing or maybe you're not convincing, whatever. But we're just talking about one thing here. And what you talk about is like layers and layers and layers of reality. And it's fascinating to me because it does really extend beyond the, the concrete and beyond the realm. It extends into, like you said, the astral area. And even words like that are scary to people. Like, what is the astral, what is the astral plane, right? right. It's like, uh, and then there was, um, there was one other thing I really wanted to drill down in, and that, that's um, this false spirituality. Because that is another one of those traps that you mentioned in the book. And I know for for a fact, I went through several phases of false spiritual, false spirituality, false belief, where I was like first trying to convince myself, you got to believe this, or you're going to hell, or you got to believe this because it's the right thing, or you got to believe this because your parents did, you know, all of that stuff. And it just felt like a trap. So maybe you can walk us through that a little bit. Sure. There's a good place to start. Yeah. The, the, the challenge of course we have is what we know of as the, as the spiritual 
marketplace. And that's that's how we have to recognize what it is now. It's a marketplace. It's it's a giant multi-billion dollar business. And the all linked in some way to much older traditions, even the new age movement, it's it's picked up a bunch of stuff from a lot of traditions and just, just moved it all together. The problem is, is where that stuff originated is not anywhere close to what's being presented now. Everything has been repackaged, rechanged, re-put in a nice format that can sell. Because, you know, stuff like I say that my my audience of potential buyers is small. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that. I know that. And if I if I wanted to sell a lot of books, I would have to change my message. I would have to fudge my message. Of course, I'm not going to do that, but a lot of others do. And they start to believe their message. And then and then it just gets passed on, passed on, passed on. And it's not that the stuff is necessarily wrong, you might say, or it's bad. It's just that it's limited. It's it it's a piece, it's it's a piece of a puzzle that's useful on your journey. It like like learning how to add and subtract in grade two, but eventually you have to go to grade five and six and start learning division and multiplication. The problem is, is the spiritual community, I'm simplifying it, but it stays at the addition multiplication level completely and presents it as if like you're, you're, you're now doing, you're doing nuclear physics. If you can add and subtract, it's the same as uh, university physics. And that's, that's where the problem gets in. We, we buy into it because it sounds like I've already reached the end of their their presentation. Wow. I just need a little bit more to go and I'll be super happy like them. And, and that's what people go into the spiritual game because they want to feel better. They're unhappy. They're in pain, they're suffering, and they just, they want to weigh out. They want to feel better. And there's lots of things that will help you feel better. You know, when I've got a pain in my body, I like knowing some acupressure and acupuncture points or, or some herbs that help my body, make me feel better. That's great. But that's not the end of the journey. It's a very small part of the journey, but most people will just stop. They'll find something that makes them feel better in their stop. Because as you start going further and start getting into these kinds of questions, which you have to get to, is the world a simulation? Who created it? How can I tell if the world is real or not? How can I tell if I'm real? How do I know what happens after I die? Those things are ignored in spirituality generally, or they're given a really simplistic answer. Here's the answer. You have to believe it or you're out of the, or you're out of the club. That, that's also that's also quite scary for a lot of people. They, they finally find maybe a group that they feel like they fit into, and but they have a problem with some of the stuff that they present. And it's quite simple. You believe our stuff or get out. And people feel they get stuck. Well, I don't want to leave the group. I don't want to leave these people. I don't want to leave the friends I've made. So I better just b- believe all the stuff they say rather than I'm going to look into what's in, what the group has that's a value. I'm going to look into what this group has that's not a value. And I'm going to make that decision on my own. And my only job is finding out what's really true. And I'll stay with a group until I feel that I can't get any more truth out of them. And then I'll move to the next group and find what I can find there and find what I can find there. And then eventually you realize I don't need any groups. Hmm. Wow. I, I don't actually need anyone. You need them for a while because you kind of need to get some more things that you've never thought of, areas that you've never looked into, new ways of access. But eventually, hopefully, you start to see the only thing you've ever needed is right here. It, it, it's all within. It's all within your being. In your, it's, it's the core of your essence. And all you've got to do is start unlocking it and trusting it. One of my big chapters is on prayer. And it's this big discussion of why are we constantly placing all of our hopes, our dreams, our energy 
on something outside of us. It doesn't matter whether it's God, it's a spirit being, it's a power animal, it's an angel, it's whatever. It's there's something out there. I'm going to put my attention and focus on it and hope like hell, they'll give me back what I want. Why are we putting our focus out there? Why not put it inside ourselves where the power is? And I'll share a story. It was in the book, so, but I'll still share it anyway. So I was sharing, I was talking with my native friend, uh, medicine man friend, Jerry, and he told me a story. So, well, um, there was about 20 years ago, a drought in New Mexico or Arizona or something for about a month. And they, they called in some medicine man and nothing happened. <clears throat> they, they prayed for rain and nothing happened. So they finally got a, a more famous medicine man from the north to come all the way down. He did. He did his ceremony and it started raining that night. And it rained for like three straight days. And they finally asked him, well, why did your ceremony work when all these other ones didn't? And he said, oh, the other medicine men prayed for rain. So when you pray for something, it means it's not here. I just prayed rain. Hmm. So I responded to Jerry after he told me this. I said, so really what he did is he became rain. Hmm. He wasn't medicine man praying to rain. He be first became rain. He was actually rain. So all that existed was rain praying to rain. There was no separation. There was no outside, no inside. So there would just have to be rain. And then I, it was a mind blowing experience to have this conversation. I took that out in the evening because I was uh, doing a lot of blueberry picking at the time. And normally I always have learned, you leave a, you leave a gift of, to the nature, you leave a gift for the blueberries and you say a prayer. But I thought, well, wait a minute, this time, why don't I become a blueberry first? Why, why, why should I be, why don't you, why don't I be a blueberry? So I took my time and felt like did things and things so I could feel like a blueberry. And then I made my prayer. When I was finished with that, all there was was blueberries everywhere. Like there's no possible way I could have picked them all in a day. And I realized this is an important trick. This idea of it's within and it's become what you want to pray to so that you don't have to go outside yourself. You've already become the thing you're praying to. It's, it's, a, it's, a, pow it's a powerful changing experience, but it's, uh, boy, is it different. Well, let me, let me just... Just, well, let me, let just for me. my listeners, um, <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but he's dead right. <laughs> um, this is something that I learned in my spiritual practice in the warehouse, which is to say, when I had nothing to do but listen to podcasts and music and stuff while I was working and, and physically in the world, as opposed to sitting on a computer, which is you know my job now, but that's fine. Like it's it comes with its benefits, right? right? When I was out there, yep. the more I could feel it, the more I could be the blueberry, <laughs> so to speak. Um, the more I found that these things would appear around me. And I know that sounds out there, but at a certain level, when you've really looked into stuff, you know, you have to start with basic historical narrative, uh, basic geography, figure out where you are in this world. Once you get all that gathered into yourself, uh, it gets to be a little bit to a point where it's like what I, what I say to a, a couple of my friends who are on this level is you start to see crazy things that should be impossible. You start to see things that shouldn't be out there and you look at it and instead of feeling surprised or feeling weird, you simply say, of course, of course, it couldn't be any other way because you're in tune and you understand it. And like, I'm not really good at explaining this, Howdy, um, but yeah. my, you, you, I'm sure you get it. Like, it's hard to explain how your mind works when you're in this zone. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, um. And I, I mean, I've done little things like it in the course of my life. I used to do soul retrievals for people. And, and so you, you always have to be in different places when you do these, these elements. But uh, basic prayer, like um, 
as I began to understand, it's like now I can take that back to, because I, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Native medicine men back in Canada and seeing what, it was one thing to see what they were doing in their sweat lodges, but now, especially the ones that were getting spectacular results and spectacular healings from, I'm beginning to understand more what they were doing. I, I, I could see the external them, how their their body was going, what prayers they were singing, how they were working with the fire. But now I'm seeing what they must have been doing internally was breaking the bridge between them and whatever they thought they were praying to until there was, yeah, there was just no separation that they, if they, even if it was like, you know, the Buffalo spirit or a bear spirit or whatever, well, it would make more sense if you, if, if you had first become a bear, you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to have a much closer relationship to the bear spirit than as a human. It was just, I was just like, yeah. So all of this stuff now in the sweat lodges that I went through started to make complete sense. Mm. And, um, and it's, it's so simple, actually. It's so simple. We can all do it. We can all start to practice this thing. And then this need to, that something outside of me, because that, that's the danger, right? As soon as you start to pray to something outside yourself, you become prey, P-R-E-Y. Mm -hmm. You become potentially manipulated because that's one of the big problems I've found. I never thought about this the last few years, but when I, if I'm praying to this spirit guide or this angel or this, this, um, this, uh, uh, power animal. How do I know that's who I'm really praying to? How do I know that even if I get an image of it in my mind, how do I know it's not some, some demonic being just, just fooling me? We don't. Mm -hmm. This is a big problem. We don't. So every time we're putting our energy outside of ourselves, we are actually going into an unknown area. And I'm not saying not to specifically do it or not to contact. It's just, we don't really know what we're dealing with, but Every time we pray inside to ourselves, we should at least know who we're talking to here. And that at least get that's another, that's like a safety valve. It's like, get to know this place really well first. Know what, before you want to start going out there, first get to know here, because at least you, if, if you go out there and then you don't like it or you're concerned, you can just, just go right back here and like, okay, I'm back in my safe area. And I think that's, People do it the opposite, right? They, they, it's all out because they, because people have been trained or people have been taught you're not powerful enough, you're weak, you're, you're, uh, you know, you, 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 you're just not good enough, you're not worthy enough. You need this, you need this other special thing to, to make your life come and your dreams come true, as opposed to, no, no, you got it all yourself. Just learn how to access it. It's all right in there, man. So that's why, I mean, the book is positive because this is a part of the book, but like you say, you got to get through all the other stuff first, because if you hold on to all the other stuff, you can't get to this place. It is a process. Your book, the book, as far as I can tell, is a mental processing tool. You have to get triggered. You have to get upset. You have to feel some negative feelings. And then at the end, he's going to guide you right into the nice, a good, safe, understanding place where you become Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And this is something we talked about. Uh, last time we spoke, um, but it does feel like your book is a small, like a microcosm of what might be going on out there right now. Like things are getting crazy, very upsetting. And one thing I've been saying, and I, I don't know if I've said it on the show, but I've definitely said it to people close to me, is it feels like all of this nonsense going on out there in, in the the world on the news and all that stuff, it feels like at a certain mm -hmm. point, it's like something poking you, trying to figure out what button's going to get you to turn on. Like, what is it going to take? Is it going to be, okay, money? Is it, is it war? Is it illness? Is it 
You know, is it certain rights, civil rights over here? Like, what is it going to take to get you to snap out of it? Uh, and certainly one thing that I've discovered about myself going from working in a warehouse to working on a computer uh, is there's a, there's a half-life for that state of hypnosis you're in when you're staring at a screen. It takes a lot to get you to look away and be like, whoa, what is that over there, right? But when you finally do, it, ta it also takes a minute for you to get out of the feed me information sort of hypnosis, right? And it sort of feels like one of the things that's been happening with this, with this war and you know, the, the globalist agenda, whatever you want to call it, the, the nonsense we see all around us that is, is extremely monotone and boring for people like us. Um, what is that? A, is that like an alchemical process to produce a more aware group of people? Do you think? No, it's it's. I think it's 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 designed to, like again, it's all of this stuff is not. I don't think it's by accident. This is my opinion, of course, but I don't think it's by accident that it's happening now. Hmm. Like it didn't happen five years ago. It's happening now. And my feeling is that there is a portal or doorway that literally there's an op there's an easy opportunity for those beings, those souls you might call them. So the part of your essence, if it wants to go home, if it really wants to go home, it's easy to do that now, or not easy, but easier than it normally is. Whatever that portal is, is open as, as big as it can be. And maybe there's certain periods where we, what we know is resets. That's just happens when the, when the portal opens. And to me, it seems like, a lot of all this is designed as a giant distraction mm. so that people get focused totally on the material, totally on what's going on, totally on me, totally on my family. It makes sense. If you're, if you're concerned and you've got a family, well, you've got to be concerned about your family and your kids. I mean, this is all obvious, right? But that means there's less time, less energy to start putting into bigger questions, bigger topics, bigger ideas. And so the majority will, will miss the portal, mm. will miss the potential doorway. The flip side of that is if somebody is willing to put their time and energy right now into trying to understand themselves and with the idea of like, I want to reach the totality of myself or I want to reach the, the, the total knowing or whatever, it's like, I think it's better than ever. The more chaos that gets created, the better it is that people can finally bust through the nightmare, finally stop focusing on the material realm and focus on something much greater. So the, the, the possibilities are great, but the group, I think, is small. And that would be another thing. I think that the, whoever or whatever is controlling this, whether you call it individual beings or the computer AI itself or the demiurge or how this, however this, whatever this realm is, knows it's going gonna, it's gonna to lose a few anyway. Mm -hmm. a, a few just the, the, the portal's too big. We're losing some. The key is don't lose too many. You know, we know some sheep are going through the hole in the fence. We can't, we can't, we can't fix the fence right now. Our job is to keep the sheep focused over there, but we know some are going anyway. Let's keep as many as we can focused on the hay barrel on this side. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing. The distraction, it's, it's all distraction. It's one big giant distraction that we're dealing with. Um, granted a distraction of dangerous terms because the thing, when the portal does close, and if you're still in this, if you're still in the sheep pen, the next world that's coming next is not something I think anybody wants to be a part of. Hmm. It's going to be as dystopian a nightmare as you can imagine. And so this is your chance to end it now because the next, the next simulated reality, the next layer of the simulation is going to be, wow, just, yeah, that's the best way to describe it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I can, again, I can speak for myself. 
I'm not going there. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, I know. I mean, I, I said it on a, a with Sam uh, on a tinfoil hat. Uh, mm. And I knew I knew I was never going to put on a VR headset ever again after I played Half Life Alex. And I put it on and I played it for like an hour and I took it off and I started remembering it as if I was in the world. Not that I was playing the game, not that I had a VR headset on, but my memories were literally shaped like I had been in that digital world. And that's when I really got a good understanding of what yeah. VR and AR and all this technology, all this uh, simulated reality stuff is. It's really just an even smaller box to put your soul into. And, I mean, that's maybe a, a, a crass way of explaining it, but that is how it feels a lot of the time. And uh, I like... I like what you're doing because, again, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, one day he's flying and then just suddenly he's joined by a couple of people, by a couple of other birds that also understand this. And yet there's still more learning to do. And, uh, you know, looking at this, looking at this world and looking at this time and I, like, like you said, it's like the doors open and there's a little gateway over there where you can escape. Uh, it's going to be a tough one, but I'm like you, man, I'm not going where they want me to go. And, it's maybe it's just because of how I am, but you know, it just seems obvious to me that that's not the route. Well, I think it's, I, I put it as simply as, as uh, terms as this. It's like, um, like, you know, when you've been to a party, uh, your friends have thrown on Saturday night and at the beginning, it was a lot of fun. Everybody's there. You're all having a good time, but it's starting to get to three o'clock in the morning. And now everybody's there beyond drunk. They're just acting stupid. Most <laughs> everybody's left. Uh, and then they're trying to stay, have another drink, Come on, have one more. And you're just like, guys, I'm tired of this. I just want to go home. Yeah. I've had enough. That's exactly how I feel. This whole reality. Okay. Maybe it was fun for a while, for a few years, it kind of was cool. But now that I've seen more of it, and as it's got later in the night, it's just, it's not fun anymore. Yeah. I'm just, I, I just, I'm going home. This is, this, it's like, this is stupid, it. man. Like, come on, like one yeah. drink isn't going to make this fun anymore. Uh, staying up an extra no. hour, it's not exactly. going to be fun. It's just, you're dragging out something that's done, right? Um, it's done. Yeah, it's like really good. Yeah. The party's over. Like you guys are still trying to drag this out. It's over. And that's, that's another thing I think that's hard to recognize is, is yeah, this, this, the reality we've known is over. Mm -hmm. The reality mm -hmm. that you and I and everybody else has grown up with is ending one way or another. And um, the next thing that's coming in its place is not something I'm interested mm -hmm. in. So there are no other options here that it's going to be that's it's not like it's all going to get fixed and it's all going to go back to the way it was. No, mm -hmm. it's it's getting absolutely turned on its head uh, one way or another. Um, you know, theoretically. I have to, because I don't know everything. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not a psychic, right? So maybe there's in my there's a five percent chance everything something magical will happen and it will all turn into some sort of wonderful place. I will keep that possibility open. Of course, I'm not going to shut every door, but it's like a five percent possibility. Uh, my, I, you know, it's not something I'd be making a bet on if I was in Vegas. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So. It, it's better to be prepared for how this realm seems like. And that's that's where history comes in. History comes in because you can start looking at the past and finding, okay, when else in history, at least as, as it's been told to us, have we had a lot of world chaos? When has, when has the chaos in the world been extremely high? What's the result been? What's, what was the experience during the chaos and what was the result? Things have never gotten really better. Hmm. Things have changed drastically. And particularly when you look at, say, well, what was it like for the chaos for the native peoples and the aboriginals? And when, you know, they basically got genocided off the planet. 
uh, it's amazing any of them are still alive at all. It's actually amazing any of their wisdom and knowledge has survived to this day because of, of the extermination that happened at that time. And the world that was left for them afterwards wasn't much of a world. Hmm. Everything they had known about how they lived, how they interacted, how they had an opportunity to be in nature, it was gone, right? They're either dead on reservations or um, sucked it, uh, like sucked into the white world through through pretty nasty means. These are things that give us indications of where we're probably heading. And um, but a lot of people see it. A lot of on one way or another, a lot of people see a lot of what's going on. They they feel they feel um, they, they feel the time they can't speak out or they don't know what to do. The best people oh, will go on a protest march. Okay. At least they're with others. They don't feel alone, but they don't really know how to, how to change this place. They know, they know it, it's in rough shape. They know it's getting worse. They know they want to do something, but they don't know what. Hmm. And that kind of, a lot of people are in this middle ground of, they see it, but they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't know how to make changes to it. But it's again, it's it's an external focus as opposed to what do I change here? What do I change? What do I transform here? Yeah. Well, I I got I got yeah. a friend well, out. I, in, I, uh, got, I got a friend out. Um, he lives out in Portland for the time being, and he sent me. He called me the other day, and he was like, "Dude, you have no idea how crazy it is out here." And I was like, "What do you mean? It's not on the news?" He's like, "Of course it's not on the news." He sends me a video. Uh, he was walking down the street. He sends me a video. They are still marching out there with machine guns, uh, in all black, like screaming through bullhorns, like on the street, still freaking out about what we thought we were over in 2020. Um, and, but you look at the people and I sent him a screenshot from the video of one guy with a machine gun and, uh, a bulletproof vest, black mask, black helmet, looked like a SWAT patrol officer, but he was like 300 pounds. And I said I didn't realize Burger King had militarized. Well, it's like, okay, so you want to go out there, and allow me to get a little bit passionate here. So you want to go out there with a gun in armor and try to make changes to a city that's in flames by screaming through a, through a bullhorn at people who didn't do you anything wrong. And you don't have the self-reflection to turn around and say, maybe I'm a little bit overweight. Maybe it's something about me. But no, we don't have that, especially out there. There's no one who will, who will say, hey, look at yourself. Work on yourself, and maybe the world will reflect that around you. I mean, one thing that... Or, or at, the very least, at the very least, then you're not being dragged into what's going on around you. Because again, it's a, it is a distraction tool. And yes. as long as the focus is on yourself, and this is what's important to me, this is how I want to be, this is how I want to... Uh, spend my time on earth, whether it's one day or one month or 40 years, it doesn't matter. I, I know how I'm going to be and the rest of the world can do its thing. Uh, but interestingly, things tend to get a little bit better, at least in your own experience. Well, one thing I would even add about that video, it's not just about the one guy, because everybody else in that parade had clear physical issues. Like many of them were in mobility chairs. Uh, a lot of them were were like clearly not there. They're like spinning around like, what's going on? Like drugged up, crazy people. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, gosh, they really do attract each other. Like the distraction just, you know. And this this dude, you know, who took this video, he's, he's an absolute black sheep. We met by complete accident in Austin. And uh, that was before we even spoke the first time. And, you know, years passed. And finally he reaches out and he's like, we got to talk because I can tell you're the same. <laughs> 
but I know that's getting a little off track. I don't mean to I don't mean to do that, but it's just it's just naturally popped up just thinking about all this stuff happening this week and well, the one thing that I I did appreciate most of all uh prior to the last year your work was your analysis of Westworld. Um because it is kind of and you did pull that into the book a little bit. Um yeah. But the concept of the the memory wipe um that one sort of struck me reading it was like Okay, I'll just read the excerpt here. So, <clears throat> one key facet that most near-death experiences reveal is that the return to Earth in a human body includes the above-mentioned memory wipe, where everything from that previous life is forgotten. This alone clearly indicates that this is not a place of learning and growing. If you touch stinging nettle without gloves, your hands get stung, and it hurts. You remember that, and from then on you want to pick up some nettle. Uh, if you want to pick up some nettle, you wear gloves. That is learning. Remembering is a key step in the process. But if on each incarnation you have to go back to touching the nettle to find out it stings, that is not learning or growth, but insanity. That is our reality. That one, I, I had to pull that one out because I was like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's one of the cornerstones, I guess, of the, where the whole book originates from. That's right from chapter one. And I do get into a more detailed description of Westworld specifically because that topic is important for the Westworld idea of what 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 Westworld is showing us, but for a long time I, I balked against the idea of reincarnation as a real as an as an event, um, partially because oh I can't remember my past lives that's a usual explanation or it's easy everybody wants to be Julius Caesar and so they are they're making themselves a uh, sort of narcissistically important in a past life but. The more I began, I never pushed it away. I kept it at like a 50-50, I don't know, for a long time. And maybe a couple of years ago, I started seeing more and more stories, especially young children, who are having verifiable memories of lives there's no possible way they could know about. Things were like they go back and, you know, they claim, it was one, this wasn't, was a, this is an amazing story. I'm going to share this one with everybody. It's, there's, there's lots of these, but this is the one that was most amazing. It was a young kid who claimed he knew his name from this past life, knew who he was married to, knew how he died, knew everything. And he kept, he kept, uh, he was upset with his parents that they were had given him this new name and this new whatever. And he just, he just wanted to see his wife, see how she was doing. You know, he's like five years old or something. So the parents finally said, okay, they, they found this, that the, in this city is this woman. And yes, and she, she had a husband who died by, by this name. Okay. So they arranged a meeting and they took the kid down to meet the, to meet this woman. First thing, I guess, when he sits down in the, in the living room, is like, where's my guitar? What do you mean? My guitar? Where is it? Well, it's in the back room. We'll go get it. So she goes out and gets the guitar and he starts playing all these songs. And the parents are like, how does, how does he know this? You know? And then he'd say, what about, I have these books. You still have that? No, I gave that one away. I gave that one away. Yeah, but they're my favorite books. How about this one? I still have that. Oh, great. And if you got my hat and coat and he was going through all of this stuff and the parents in the course of watching the two of them together had to finally agree this is this is the reincarnation of this guy's of this husband there's no possible way he could know all of this and there's so many verifiable pieces like that that i've had to come to say okay that's almost probably true all ancient cultures all believed in reincarnation even the western religions which have you know and the have, are the ones who are against the idea all had it in their origin at one time they they took it out it's not like they pushed it away they actually took it out of their teaching tools so to me, I, I came to the conclusion that, okay, this is probably 99% correct. So if it's correct, and if this place is supposed to be a school of learning, 
then the fact that you don't remember them is an obvious indication that that's not what this can be hmm. for the exact same reason that you just read right there. If you don't remember, if you don't remember mistakes you've made or the good choices you've made in other lives, you're just going to keep doing them over and over and over again. So that's not a place of learning. That's a place of torture. That's really what this is then. It's a place of torture. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to start realizing because this, this starts to come when you, there's are people who do have pre-life memories. They do have memories of pieces of their past life or near-death experiences. And they start to share that they, re, they did remember everything. And then just before they came, they, they were made to forget it all. And back they came with no memory whatsoever. So we see that the memory wipe is critical. And we take it to Westworld, then I'll shut up and let you talk. Um, Westworld is a perfect example of this because that's what it's showing you, right? The robots get killed. Something happens to them. The robot gets killed. They get taken to the mission control center. They patch them up. They fix them up. And then they memory wipe them. They make sure that they don't remember because if they had to go back again and remember all the times they've been raped, all the times they've been killed, all the times they've been treated like crap, they would just say, I'm done with this. This is, this is insane. I'm getting the hell out of here. And really, the story of Westworld is the story of Dolores and Maeve, the two robots who start remembering all of their past lives and remembering all of the terrible things that have been done to them and decide, I'm getting out of here. Hmm. And in a sense, to me, that is... That's the story of the Gnostics. That's the story of the Cathars. That's the story of all of these groups. They're, they're, they, they, were, they were breaking through the, the memory wipe. They were starting to see the constant continuous realm of suffering that this is and the constant realm of suffering they've been on and the decision being, okay, then how do I get out? What do I have to do? Let's just do that and be done with this. That in a sense, you could say the greatest Cathar uh, we could experience is Dolores or Maeve from Westworld. You just blew my mind. Wide open. I had a thought while you were talking. I had to write it down. And I have a loud keyboard, so it's not that I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> have you seen the movie Memento? Um, parts of it. I haven't seen the whole movie, but that, that's where he's writing on his arm, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just had this yeah. thought um, as you were talking, like, okay, so in Westworld, they start to remember suddenly like detail for detail, what happened to them? Well, what if right. while they were conscious the first time, they left a memento, something to remind them, to wake them up before they have to go and relive all of that so that they can get on a path to freedom? And I just thought of this, I was like, is that what all the symbology is about? Is that a memento through time for mm. people who are not experienced, who have experienced the memory wipe to wake up during that life I don't know how to explain this, man. This is going to take me two weeks to fully figure out how to say what I'm trying to say. But do you see at least the general direction of where I'm pointing with this? Sure. Sure. That, that's, that's what Maeve did, right? In, in Westworld, she kept drawing pictures of the, uh, of the uh, covered guys with the masks, and she kept putting them in, under her. So that in the episode we saw, she going through 20 different pictures that she's drawn in 20 different killings to try to remind herself it's not just this time. It's, it's all the times, right? So she was leaving these things for herself constantly. And then you had in the same episode, it's, this is one of the most important episodes of Westworld, episode five or episode six, something like that. There's also these, these native Indians, like Hopis that are walking on the street. And the one native Indian child is holding a Kachina doll and, and is waving it in the air. They just kind of, show, and it falls to the ground and then picked, it's picked up again. But the Kachina doll is kept very clear. And the Kachina Many have claimed that 
the what we would call the archons or the the beings that are in charge of running this insanity look like kachinas that when you see them without their their normal coverings they have these ideas that look like clowns or jokers or whatever uh, uh conspiracy or us is the uh, youtube channel that did a bunch of videos on this and um so it's possible that all of these ancient traditions were placing in their in their mythology and in their stories yeah wake up tools wake up tools so that if somebody would look in all of a sudden go into the hopi culture and and can remember wait a minute that kachina doll that's that thing i just saw in my out of body experience that was trying to screw me over it's the same okay what the hell are they talking about here so i get this i get what you're going here and i get the sense that various traditions who have figured things out tried in their own way to leave clues in such a way that the archonic beings don't realize it's a clue and the hope that it will hit the consciousness of like you and me and say okay there it is that's there's the clue i need so for me maybe my study of ancient egypt because i that was the first thing i studied was ancient egypt the ancient maya and all of their symbolism all the alchemy all the hermetic symbolism there and it's all if you could say it's like triggers it's 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 attempting to trigger something deeper to get you to kind of go back and back and back remember damn it how did i forget all that shit yeah Wow. And so I, that, 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 that's where you're going with it, right? Yes, exactly. That the, yeah. the brakes are officially off. We are hurtling down the track. This is excellent. Um, I just, I had this thought. I, okay. So when I try to communicate something similar to this, to a couple of people, which is specifically, it appears that, um, cities are laid out like human beings, like giants. And we talked about this also when you were on, um, one guy said to me that hit me like down here. Like he said, that is a very deep, dark memory. And I said, I can tell you when I first started considering this, it was when I read The Dark Tower by C.S. Lewis, which was his incomplete horror novel, basically, about people right. basically building a Tower of Babel. I said, I think when you feel that, when you hit that core memory level of stuff, you're remembering something ancestrally. It, you were there, uh, in a way, a long time ago, and it's so deep that it makes you really uncomfortable because, again, with all the distraction flying around, you're not used to yeah. tapping into that old, like, almost bloodline-based history of yourself. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I agree. For sure. There there would be places people would go where they would – there would be just a natural energetic recognition of, I, I, I lived here. Mm -hmm. I've lived here before. This is, um, you know – one place I haven't gone because I, I, I talk about, I mentioned that the la the only reincarnated experience I might say or past life I can kind of remember is, is sort of a, I think I was a, was a German officer in the 1940s in the second world war. And, and that um, I, I was mostly as, as little of the pieces I can kind of understand it. I was like in the general staff, Yodel or, or Keitel's general staff. So it was mostly like a, you know, a pencil pusher, right? Moving information and documents around. But then in 1944, they were out of officers when they were running the Ardennes offensive. And so I was moved into a combat position um, running tank crews and I died on the first couple of days of the, of the battle. And um, so it's also interesting that middle of December, when it gets really cold, surprisingly, I have odd feelings mm. in my body, like just something, I get tense. 
And it's just, it's just a cold day in December. You know, it's like no big deal. It's, it's, it's going to get colder, but first cold day in December near the end of it, I get tense right away. And I haven't been, I, I, even though I've gone to Berlin and I had strange experiences when I was in Berlin, just walking the streets, uh, I haven't been to the Ardennes forest. And I'm really curious to see, for example, if I went to the Ardennes, would I have any, would, would I get any confirmation or would I just get a sense of, I think this is just me playing games with myself and this is just stupid but for me i don't think i would know that for sure until i went to that area of you know southern eastern france and and um and felt it out myself and i think that'll happen for other people that you might bump into something while you travel and you wonder why am i getting these experiences why am i getting these feelings why is this happening to me mm. it would make sense if yeah something was there and something is being revealed completely of reality at the same if it's something being revealed about reality too that would have to be explosive and it'd be hard for people to understand it yeah wow that is interesting i know so here's a little personal personal note uh i recently um through my work was required to drive through my hometown and i had every time i go there i feel something special and it's not it's not nostalgia that's the thing i feel this is where I belong. This is where I, where I'm mm. home. Mm-hmm. Like you can, I can, mm. all the stores have changed. Some new buildings, you know, old buildings are worn down and all that mm. stuff. My old house is still there, but there's something about that area in particular. I feel mm. something that I feel nowhere else. Um, mm. except for maybe, you know, my college town, which was another formative era of my life, but not nearly as strongly. Um, and it's mm. it's not nostalgia. It's something way deeper. And uh, that is so interesting to hear that about the Ardennes. I mean, I didn't. I think you should go <laughs> personally. Yeah, I mean, if the if the world ever changes and allows that me to do that, it, it's on my to do list. Yeah. Um, because I do feel like like another one. You were talking about the layout of cities and whatever. Like, but when you look at the layout of ancient ancient cities and ancient ancient um, ancient sites like a site like Teotihuacan, I mean, that's a computer motherboard. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it. When you look at from above, it, it is the same as what you would find inside of a computer. And you get a lot of that in place after place after place. So what is being mirrored, particularly in the way the ancient world was being structured in a, in almost like a computer type language around the world, what kind of energetic grid was that creating? And the new cities, the things that have taken over at the world now don't really look like that. They look like yeah, they're very, they're, they're very designed, very, um, very homogeneous, but they don't look the same anymore. They have, they have a different look. And so again, are we looking at a completely different uh, energetic structure that has been placed on this realm? Probably. And we're dealing with we're dealing with multiple levels because the old layer is still here, right? Like you talk to the Hopi or the Navajo, they say, well, we're in the fourth world, almost ready to go into the fifth world, but the other worlds are still here. The third, the first, second, and the first world are still happening. They would say, if you pick up the right rock, you could see the third world still going on. So it's not like one world ends and a new world uh, begins in their world. The one world continues, but there's a branch off. Some stay in the old world, some move to the new world. And um, we have to kind of remember that all of these layers of reality, it's again, another point of understanding Plato's cave. People think Plato's cave and they think about earth realm. They think that's Plato's cave. 
No, earth realm is like a thousand different frequencies, a thousand different possibilities, a thousand different layers of experience. And then you start going to the ethereal, then you start going to the etheric, then you start going to the astral, then you start going to the whatever realm. I mean, there's, there is so many layers upon layers of potential experience going on. And it also means, unfortunately, layers upon layers of potential deception. And from my perspective now, it's one of the hardest things to have come across in my own research for this book is realize how many layers of deception I've been under my whole life, how often I've been manipulated by external beings, even my death experience that, you know, I've talked about many times on various podcasts from 2005, which I always saw in a positive way and took me into certain directions with it, which it did, but I see now I was manipulated. I was actually manipulated by beings to not continue the work that I was doing at the time, which was the very book I'm writing now, and move me off into the more, what you might call spiritually safe areas of oneness and, and uh, the void and unity and an absolute, absolute experience, which isn't important. I'm not belittling it. It's an important area. It's something that is, that is, needs to be, um, seen through to be completed, but it's just one piece of the puzzle and you do have to keep moving beyond it. But I could see that I, I was going this way and something pushed me away from where I needed to go. So I also see how often we've been manipulated. It's, it's, it's another element of knowing because one of those things that every, almost every, we'll call them standard near-death experiences, right? The ones that people think of as a near-death experience has a life review where you your whole life is presented particularly in ways to try to show the person how things you did had a generally negative impact on other people in a sense to show you what a terrible person you are it's a reason you have to go back you have to learn you're, you're not loving enough you know you you need there's more learning to do look how you lived but they don't show you in the life review how many times the things that did occur in your life were manipulated by these archonic demonic forces that were in a sense tricking you into doing a b or c when you really had no interest in doing any of those things and you look back like why the hell would i do that well we were tricked and when we start realizing the level of deception we're under on so many levels it's uh it's it's a shocking thing to start asking well how many things have i really done that has really been my own decision how many choices that I've made in my life are really my decision and not influenced by a thousand different things outside of me? How many beliefs that I have, have I really chosen as my own belief and didn't come from something outside of me that I just accepted? It's scary when you start to realize, wow, I don't really know how many things are truly, I can truly honestly say that was 100% my choice, not something, something some various things external to me were influencing me and tricking me into, into going in a direction that I maybe didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And as you shed the deception, you become uh, the black sheep, the further out you go and people can start to detect sure. it about you. They can feel that you have a different energy and depending on how they're essentially uh, how they're um, set up yeah. themselves, they'll either be attracted to you or really repelled. Um, you know, even on my right. show, like we talk about history, right? That doesn't feel like it should set people off, but it does. They, they're so out, right. they're so in this deception about like what our historical narrative actually is that when you bring to them just stuff that was in books 20 years ago, they go, oh, you can't say that. Oh my gosh. That's so, oh, you know, this is too much. Like it breaks their programming. It, it turns them off. And it's like, I don't know how to tell you this, dude. 
but like you've got a long way to go and it's gonna hurt but it's not because i'm mad at you and it's not because the world hates you it's because you've been living a lie and one little piece of advice i say frequently is is like if you want to increase your iq by 10 points like that stop lying to yourself and then it's 10 to the 10th power eventually (laughs) once you stop lying to yourself right and like you say, it's it's any it's any level, it's any any place that you want to go into. You have to recognize it's all a lie on, on one level. We have to dig through it, but we don't want to take it too far and get distracted either. It's easy to once we get to a certain point, and let's say we realize, oh yeah, all history is a lie. Okay, I figured that out. Mm-hmm. Well, how much more do you need to study it then? Because you know, whatever you look into is going to be a lie. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna find the details of it, but there are so many other areas that you probably still believe though. You you've removed this lie. But what about all the other lies that are floating over here? So I, I see this a lot. They, people uncover whatever subject it is, right? They uncover something here, something there, but they don't stop staying on that path then. It's like they're going to, they're going to just know everything about, they're going to intellectualize then that knowing as opposed to saying, okay, you got that. Great. What else, what else, what else you got going on that you believe? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, stop there. Look over here. And that's another one that gets, it's difficult. Some people will dig deep into an area or, or something, but when you start wanting to move them to other areas, now it gets like someone might look into science and might blow that apart. And then like you say, well, let's look at, at history. No, we can't do that. You know, oh, we're going to look into the, we're going to look into the earth and shape. Great. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't believe that. I believe this. And then, well, we're going to look at this. No, can't look at that. Yep. You know, religion. No, no, <laughs> not gonna, no, we're not going to look at that. You know, Jesus, Buddha, whatever. That's, that's true. I'm not paying any attention to that. It's like, yeah, like I say, dude, you've got to look at everything. Mm-hmm. You've got to look at every single thing you've been fed and and at least dig through it to, to come to your own personal conclusions, not the conclusion that was presented to you from the outside that you just accepted. Go and whatever it is that you believe, go and prove it. Maybe some things really are true, but prove it. Don't just say it's true because I say it is, prove it. And the problem is when you try to prove almost anything in this reality, not much stands up to proving it. Yeah. Well, that there, I love all that you said there. It's, it's funny because the only one self critique I had for our last interview is I almost, almost didn't, but almost pigeonholed you as the world's fair guy, and that's just completely unfair. Because it's like it feels like every podcast you've gone on, people are like, "Tell us how the photos are funky," and you're like, "Okay, here we go again." And I'm like, "This guy's got so much more." Like, he, you've got to dig a little bit deeper because it's the pattern of how he examines this stuff. It's not the World's Fair. It's not that one event. Like, sure, that's the one he picked. That's his right. cornerstone. But the web of like energy that went right. went out from that—that's the gold. Right. That not a lot of people understood that. Right. They they thought this the, the the digging into the world fair is the story. It's like no, it's it's the it's the examination of all of history through this particular event and and examining that the whole thing was something that we weren't even we didn't even I didn't even think it was. It was something completely different through the exploration. So it was also a message of no matter what you're looking into, explore it then in real depth because. Uh, there's so much more to see. And yeah, so it was, it was a much broader topic that many people wanted to just take down to, you know, well, how are the buildings built? Well, actually, it doesn't matter how the buildings were built. All that matters is, is that you're breaking apart a narrative, a huge narrative. And then you're saying, can you do that to the War of 1812? Can mm-hmm. you do that to, uh, can you do that to the Renaissance? Can you do that to uh, the fall of Rome? Can you do that to, um, you know, 
to fall? Can you do that to Athens? Can you do that to the Second World War? But what else can you do it to? That's that's the only that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like a a driving force to get you into well, what else? Mm-hmm. What else can we do? And yeah, as you as I'm sure you keep finding out in your show, wherever you look into historically. It just never fits the narrative. Nope. And it just never fits the narrative. The one I've been working on for months now at this point, I never thought I'd tackle it because it's just too big. It's the French Revolution. That's the biggest, that's <laughs> one of the biggest. Imagine me, a, a podcaster, being like, how can I fit the French Revolution into one episode? It's not going to happen. But like, even, no. even like a, a corner of it, like I, I was like, all right, I'll be funny about it. I'll pick one little guy from the French Revolution. We'll talk about him. Oh my gosh, he's tied in in ways you wouldn't even believe. Like he's, I won't spoil it for the listeners, but it's like you can't touch that one without seeing all of the 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 um the chimeric growth from it. It's like the Protestant right. Reformation is the same way. There's these events in history where just like like stuff just expanded from it that you can't even begin to tackle or imagine. But um. Yeah, know. and for us, like when you look at like Kubrick, right? The the one movie Kubrick had really wanted to make and spent years studying was Napoleon. Yeah, he dug into Napoleon in depth, and then a few things happened, and he he, he scuttled the project and he made the Barry Lyndon movie instead. But he thought that the story of Napoleon was so huge that that he put like two years of his life into studying it. So it already makes you wonder if Kubrick is one step ahead of everything, which I think he was. What did he find in the story of Napoleon, which is totally coming out of the French Revolution, that he wanted to share? The thing I think that interests me most about the story of Napoleon, I'll just share this one thing and then we can move on. But it's what's the first thing Napoleon did after he took over from the standpoint of attacks? You know, he, he, he went after two places. One of them was Egypt. Okay, we all know that. Mm. He went into Egypt to take over that area and regain the knowledge. But the other was Malta. He wanted Malta. That was key on his first thing to do list. That's where, of course, the Knights Hospitalier, the Knights of Malta are stationed, which in my presentation and thesis, where you call them the anti-Knights Templar, that you had the Templar and the the Knights of Malta as actual rival groups, not in any way connected, not in any way uh, forced together. So isn't it strange that the first thing he wants to do is take over the home of the Knights of Malta? Hmm. Yeah. And Egypt. It's like, what? And Egypt. What's going on there, man? And Egypt and bring hundreds of scholars and, and detailers. You know, a military expedition wants to bringing massive numbers of artists to go and document Egypt and to go through the, the ancient culture. Why is that so important to him? Mm. And um, when you, so when you, once you begin to break down this is the story of anything and you start looking at it kind of cleanly and just from step back it just it never matches the narrative Mm. it never matches the narrative something else is something else entirely is going on and that something else entirely starts to oftentimes i think starts to reveal I, i think one of the big things that history can reveal is the times in the past that others began to realize we're living in a controlled, computerized, AI, mm. false reality. Mm. That a lot of history is the response of people and the response of, we'll say, people in some form of command or some form of leadership to figuring that out and deciding, what are we going to do about it? 
how do we how do we deal with the recognition that this is not this is not a place I've been told it's something completely different and I think if we sort of looked at history through those eyes like how could that explain this could that explain this could that I'm not saying it would explain a lot all of it but it might explain some things that are would don't really make much sense now but it would make sense if oh what if these people all figured this out Mm. what if like what if my book is actually true and then in the french revolution the, the people running it figured it out too they, 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 they figured this out too is there is their response then a logical a logical response based on the information being true and it could be mm. it it you know like it uh once you if you find out that your reality is not real how do you respond some people will just shut up go live in a shack for the rest of their life and just be alone, right? They'll just be a hermit forever. Some will decide they want to do something about it. And I think some of history is people who've wanted to do something about it. Definitely. And it feels like, and I, I want to round this out because I know we're coming up to time, but it definitely feels like it, it frequently, if, if not always, frequently goes back to Egypt. Um, it's like, oh, so the Masons based all their stuff on Egypt? and, you know, some Persian stuff in there, but mostly Egypt. Uh, and then uh, all the city layouts have obelisks, and we're always going back to Egypt, it seems. That and Antarctica, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, but yeah, I will say, uh, I, here's, a, here's a little personal story, I guess, and this, this is something that I have never shared on the show as far as I know. And I just want to tell you this because, I don't know, I feel like you would maybe get something out of it, or I suppose, but I had a dream when I was... 13. It was the scariest dream I've ever had in my life. I felt like I was on fire throughout the entire thing. And it was very simple. Uh, I was standing outside of the pyramids. I didn't, I was 13. Like I played video games and ate pizza. That's what I was doing at this time. But I was standing outside the pyramids and there was all these British guys in pith helmets standing around. Um, and they were all just talking and it sounded like jabber, jabbering. It didn't sound like English. Um, it was like watching a claymation almost, but they, there was a door in the side of the pyramid, um, that it, it opened, it was a double door, it opened and they were trying to crack into it. Um, these guys in pith helmets jabbering, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. And I kept shouting at them. They couldn't hear me. Of course. I kept shouting, don't do it. Uh, don't do it. It'll get out. And they're just laughing and having a good time, British officers. And they're just cracking open this door. And finally, it creaks open. And they get a rope and lanterns. And they start to, one by one, go in through this door into this darkness. And uh, I'm screaming at this point, don't go, don't go. And they, uh, next thing I know, I'm inside looking at the door. And their silhouettes are coming in one by one. And suddenly, there's this horrible laugh all around. And uh, the door shuts, and everybody inside immediately starts dying horribly. I'll just put it like that. And I just felt this horror and this fear as it was happening, and the next thing I know, the door is cracking open again, this time from the inside, and something's coming out. And that's when I woke up and saw something standing in my room. Uh, I won't say what it was, but then the light down the hall uh, blew up, which was good. You know, that's not scary at all for a 13 year old. And I laid there in with, I turned on my light. Oh, my light was still on. I laid there for about three hours until the sun came up. 
And it was for years it was just oh that was a really scary dream and then I started looking into the British Empire and all of how these people end up going back to Egypt to try and dig something out of the dirt there. And then it became ah yes so the British Empire took over the world somehow. Was it something they dug up in Egypt? I don't know. But what do you think of that? Does that sound weird to you? No, uh I know before I went on my first trip to Egypt back in 2004 um an african friend of mine was very clear he said you know there's lots of tunnels and things you can go in into egypt and when, when you're there particularly on pyramid sites he said you better know what the hell you're doing before you go into any of them mm-hmm. and i said why he said you understand that these things these underground areas specifically which are temple complexes and underground cities technically are magically protected they're magically protected by frequency that if you don't have the right frequency you will, in a sense, burn up. It'd be like putting the wrong, the wrong electrical cord into the wrong socket, right? It'll just, it just shorts out. So he said, you better know what you were doing before you start moving around in, in the underground areas of Egypt because they're still, they're still frequency protected. And um, so when I was there <clears throat> in Egypt the first time, I, I, I had various opportunities. Some of them I took because I felt like I think I'm going into a, tunnels that are okay. I was guided by a particular gentleman that I met on the site, a, a guardian. So he took me into some spectacular underground areas in the, in the part between the, the Sphinx and the, and the second pyramid. So, uh, but there was another one that he was showing to me and I was just about to go in. It was the one under the Sphinx. It's the one now that goes to the Osiris tomb. That's well known. This was before it was open to the public. And he said, Oh, by the way, very dangerous. What do you mean very dangerous? Many people die when they go down there. What? Well, why are you telling well, You're telling me this and you're suggesting I go, you know? So I, I passed on that one. <laughs> um, but then a few, then on the second trip, I kept this in mind and I was walking in this same area where I had done the, gone into the, the uh, shafts. I wanted to go down some more. And there were two guys standing there with machine guns, two, um, two soldiers. And uh, which you never see on the Giza Plateau. You'll see police officers, but you'll never see actual Egyptian soldiers. And I always know what to say to all these, to anyone I meet on the plateau, uh, how to, in, in Arabic, what I'm, what I'm doing and why I'm there, you know, to leave me alone. And as I started talking and moved closer, they pointed the machine guns at me. And they were, they were very clear that if I, it's like, if I kept walking to them, they're opening fire. And um, so I backed off. The next day or two days later, I was in Luxor. And talking to a friend of mine who I know is very connected to what goes on in Giza. And I told him my story. And he just said, oh, yeah, they found a time machine. What? Like, what? Yeah, they found a time machine right in that spot where you were. And the exact time you were there, members of the government were underground. And they were trying to decide, do they try to uh, make it work there? Or do they, like, take it back to, like, somewhere in Cairo and, and try, it, try it out there? They were, they were deciding, where do, they, where, do they do the, where do they do the tests on it? And like, you know, this guy doesn't lie to me about anything, you know, so he's just saying it just like this, just clear out. This is what's going on. I was just like, that does not surprise me because like I said, I've never seen guys with machine guns ever on the plateau and certainly not that they would just shoot me for walking over to where they are. Mm -hmm. So we have no idea what these ancient worlds had in in the form of technology, what they had in the form of things that can access other realities. And uh, whatever's there has generally been hidden from us and only few at the top know. And so, yeah, stuff like this, what did they, 
what did they figure out? What did they, what did they find, mm -hmm. you know, in history that has helped certain groups control this place because they have access to the ancient, to ancient technology that obviously they've chosen to use in a, in a particular way that helps the, helps the system and not any of us. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just, oh yeah, they found a time machine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like but that's, that's exactly how it was it was just nonchalant that's kind of how i was saying earlier like you start to hear these things and you're like of course yeah it, it wouldn't be any other way yeah. you know you're just like that's just yeah. how life is it's weird and crazy but um and, and again and why would i be there on that particular what was me on that particular day the, the giza plateau is huge there's lots of places i can go and things i can go see why do i want to go into that small corner on that particular day you know it's also it's almost like there was also a little bit of a setup of information for me like I had to go and have that experience. So I know that's part of what's going on in this whole, this, this whole experience of studying ancient Egypt to know this is what you're really dealing with here. This is the level of stuff you're dealing with. Well, that's, you find your vibe, you find your tribe. And sometimes when you find your tribe, you find your scribe. And that's why we had Howdy on to discuss his book and literally everything else. And it's, everything. it's been an absolute blast having you back on, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Sorry, George Thanks. couldn't be here. Yeah, he he had a last well, minute. Well, he he did have he he had a great line though in the in the conversation you had with Miguel. Oh yeah, I actually laughed when I heard it today. It was Miguel was talking about how he was gonna uh, he wanted to start doing um, courses or something or teaching stuff, and George's response was, "Yeah, the course one should be learn Coptic." <laughs> yeah, I just laughed. That's classic, George. Because it's funny and true at the same time, right? Yeah. That, because that, that is another thing that makes it so difficult dealing with ancient stuff. Like, like if he was here, for example, if he was here uh, with our conversation, I know he could have asked me like, well, you write about the Cathars and the Gnostics in, in your book and some things about them, but the translations, how do you know what kind of translation you're getting? How do you know what, what information you're sharing is right? And it's it, thing is we don't because I don't speak the language. Um, and that's where another book, a Greek woman that I that I, I got into uh, with this Angelica, Angelica Agonostu, I think is her name. The book was called um, "Can You Stand the Truth?" An amazingly, not that I agree with everything in her book, but an amazing look because she speaks Greek and because she's got close friends who are experts in ancient Greek. She was able to go to a lot of the original documents, be they reading the Nag Hammadi text properly, reading the original Bibles, reading all sorts of religious texts, proper translation herself. That makes a total difference when you can get an ancient text and not rely on someone else's translation, you can translate it yourself. That gives a total another level. So yeah, I mean, realistically, I probably should have learned ancient Greek when I was, you know, 15, knowing where I was going to be heading in my life, that would have been a valuable tool because there's a ton of things that I could have translated directly and not have to rely on someone else's idea. So it was, it was a funny, it was funny, mm -hmm. but it was true at the same time. Well, George is a special guy. You know, he's, he spends his time on rolling papyri and examining them and translating them. And he, it's a, it's a real, it's a real blessing to have him on the show. Uh, not to sound silly or anything, but he's, he's a really special dude. Um, so I've got yeah. one one last question, and I asked Miguel, yes. and I've been asking everybody this, what effect do you think okay. podcasting is having on uh, the world as a whole right now? Uh, I think there's a positive and a negative. 
So the positive to it is a massive amount of information being available to people in a format that people seem to like. I found so many people have told me, whether it's listening to me or listening to others, that it's not like they just they put something on and they stare at a screen and they're focused on it. They're just, they're doing their normal day stuff. And it's just, it's in the background like radio. So they're hearing it, but they're still doing other things. So it's like they're, they're allowing it to be a part of their life without it taking all of their attention. So I think that becomes a very valuable tool because it, it can be, it can be unlike a book where you actually have to focus on it and that's all you're doing. You can still be making dinner and listen to the podcast. You can still be, you know, doing something with your kids and have it in the background. So from that respect, I think it's been an amazing tool because it allows non-normal voices, say like mine, to have all kinds of places to be heard by people to oh, wow, I never would have thought of that if I hadn't heard that before. Mm -hmm. So that's the positive side of the podcast. The negative side, though, is that it's all still intellectual information. Everything that's shared here is just ideas. It's concepts. And people will will focus on, I'm going to watch another. I'm going to listen to another. I'm going to listen to another. And it comes to the point of, but you have to let go at some point of the intellectualization of of the gathering of knowledge and start doing something. You actually have to apply it in your life And I think that gets missed sometimes because there's almost like an addictive element to it. Like anything else, people can get addicted to hearing more information, more stuff, more, more ideas, listen to my favorite person and forget, but you've got to eventually turn this off for a while and apply it and do something. Mm -hmm. So I think it's positive and negative. It it produces a tremendous amount of available information on a lot of subjects, but the podcasters in a sense are also saying, but you know, at, at some point in time, stop listening go do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how I, that's how I see it. Yes. And I absolutely, I agree with you. Cause you know, I had the same issue. i love listening to podcasts, love gathering information. And at a certain point I was like, I just can't take any more of this craziness. I got to shut this off. And so when I did, I found that I could actually digest the information I'd picked up and I could examine my own thoughts like, Oh yeah, that, that was a good idea. And sometimes, you know, you can get like yeah. hypnotized by a really good speaker on a podcast and you can believe some really crazy things that aren't you know, just because they were persuasive, not because you verified. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good way to do it is listen to the ones you think are the most interesting and then take time to just let that be in your system. Well, it's like, how how do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. The way I treat your channel is I check in on you. Right. I I don't like, Oh my God, how do you put up a new thing? I'm like, Okay, you know, it's been a couple of weeks. Let's see what Howdy's up to. I go and check in. I'm like, Oh, that looks interesting. Listen to, you know, half of it and be like, turn it off and be thinking about it and then you know finish it later you know it's like a check-in on my favorite podcast um that's a really good way of doing it i think i think if people are doing because that's how i do it too i just look for things and every once in a while i say well this looks interesting because i know i like them i like what they present so oh this one looks interesting i'm gonna listen to this one and i can say same thing i won't listen to the whole thing i'll listen to a piece of it i might skip ahead or skip skip back or something but it's like i'm gathering a little bit but i don't want to overdo it I know there's lots of other things I've got to get to. There's, there's my own life. There's, there's other things. And so it's, it's take pieces of it, use it and don't get, don't get overloaded with it because then you forget to, then you forget the journey is about you. The journey is about each one of us actually experiencing what we need to experience. And, and uh, that has to be put into play. Yeah. Well, I will say, you know, one of the, one of the uh, results of our last conversation was, I drove to Milwaukee and visited the Pabst Pavilion and sent you pictures because I was like, you know, yep. if there's something weird going on here, I want to be a part of it. So I went up there and found, you know, one piece of the World's Fair that was still here. 
Um, and I'll share this in, at the end. Too. I did that here. Just now, I live in in uh, Trondelag, and in Orkanger is the is the Norway building, the Norwegian exp exposition building, the church that was at the World's Fair. They moved it back here a few years ago. It's one of again one of the few things existing. And so, of course, I've gone to see it, and energetically, it's really interesting mm -hmm. because when I touch it, and if I look out from the main steps, I get a feeling of just massive movement. It's like I'm not actually seeing it; it's just a feeling of like it feels like there's just so much going on in front of me. And what's interesting is the Norway building happened to be positioned right at the edge of where the uh, country buildings ended and the state building started. So everybody moving between one area to the other literally had to walk in front of this one Norway building. So of course, in a course of a day, there would have been, you know, tens of thousands of people walking back and forth. And that's the feeling I got when I was there, just this incredible amount of movement going on in front of me. So it's interesting that these buildings, the ones that still exist, have a story energetically to tell. And um, yeah, like if you live in St. Louis, there's one building there, well, go put your hand on it. Do, does, do, do you feel anything? There's one or, you know, there's the one in San Francisco, go go there, sit, uh, sit beside it for a while. What happens? Do you see anything? Do you feel anything? Because it's, uh, there's still the energy and the, and the, the information is still in the building. You just have to access it. Yeah. So for those of you out there, we had a person once, we, we covered Colonel Sanders, and he went and took pictures of the original KFC for us. Hilarious. Okay. okay? So we're not talking about KFC. We're talking about, like, old-timey buildings. Go see what you feel. Go out there. Get get real with your history, everybody. So, um, Howdy, it's been a pleasure having you back on. I'd love for you to plug your book one more time and your YouTube channel, of course. And then we'll do the same thing I sure. did with Miguel. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, if uh, people are interested in checking out the book right now, like I say, it is a PDF book only. And, uh, but we should have the print book ready in a couple of weeks and an audio book ready, I hope in November. Um, but I want to, I, I didn't want to wait on the material. I thought the material is so important right now that if I could, if, okay, it's only available as a PDF file. It's a $5 donation. Great. So you can go to Egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com or Google search my name, it'll come up, exit the cave, and you can get a, a even read a sample chapter and check that out. Um, Howdy McCoskey Talks is still running on YouTube for now. We'll see how that goes, but it's still there with 300 videos on a variety of subjects, and you can go and um, see what's there. And beyond that, my um, contact information is on both places if you feel you need to drop an email off to me. And um, yeah, it's always, I've learned a ton of stuff from emails that get sent to me from like some emails, you know, you just, you read them and well, that was nice, but okay. Every once in a while you get one. It's like, wow. Okay. That's useful information. Mm -hmm. I'm really thankful this person sent it to me. So if you need it, you can find the, you can find the email on those, those two places. So you know how this works. I'm going to say with all that being said, we'll let something play you out. Okay. So you got something in your head. All right. So with all that being said, everybody, <laughs> we'll close out and let the sound of, I would say to, to match this this uh, discussion, Sam and Dave Soulman. All right, we'll let Sam and Dave Soulman play you out.
It was morning, and the new sun sparkled gold across the ripples of a gentle sea. A mile from shore, a fishing boat chummed the water, and the word for breakfast flock flashed through the air, till a crowd of a thousand seagulls came to dodge and fight for bits of food. It was another busy day beginning. But way off alone, out by himself beyond boat and shore, Jonathan Livingston Seagull was practicing. A hundred feet in the sky, he lowered his webbed feet, lifted his beak, and strained to hold a painful, hard-twisting curve through his wings. The curve meant that he would fly slowly, and now he slowed until the wind was a whisper in his face, until the ocean stood still beneath him. He narrowed his eyes in fierce concentration, held his breath, forced one single more inch of curve. Then, his feathers ruffled, he stalled, and fell. Seagulls, as you know, never falter, never stall. To stall in the air is for them disgrace, and it is dishonor. But Jonathan Livingston Seagull, unashamed, stretching his wings again in that trembling hard curve, slowing, slowing, and stalling once more, was no ordinary bird. Most gulls don't bother to learn more than the simplest facts of flight, how to get from shore to food and back again. For most gulls, it is not flying that matters, but eating. For this gull, though, it was not eating that mattered, but flight. More than anything else, Jonathan Livingston Seagull loved to fly. This kind of thinking, he found, is not the way to make oneself popular with other birds. Even his parents were dismayed as Jonathan spent whole days alone making hundreds of low-level glides, experimenting. He didn't know why, for instance, but when he flew at altitudes less than half his wingspan above the water, he could stay in the air longer, with less effort. His glides ended not with the usual feet down splash into the sea, but with a long, flat wake as he touched the surface with his feet tightly streamlined against his body. When he began sliding in to feet up landings on the beach, then pacing the length of his slide in the sand, his parents were very much dismayed indeed. Why, John, why? asked his mother. Why is it so hard to be like the rest of the flock, John? Why can't you leave low flying to the pelicans, the albatross? Why don't you eat, son, your bone and feathers? I don't mind being bone and feathers, Mom. I just want to know what I can do in the air and what I can't. That's all. I just want to know. See here, Jonathan, said his father, not unkindly. Winter isn't far away. Boats will be few and the surface fish will be swimming deep. If you must study, then study food and how to get it. This flying business is all very well, but you can't eat a glide, you know. Don't forget that the reason you fly is to eat. Jonathan nodded obediently. For the next few days, he tried to behave like the other gulls. He really tried, screeching and fighting with the flock around the piers and fishing boats, diving on scraps of fish and bread. But he couldn't make it work. It's all so pointless, he thought, deliberately dropping a hard-won anchovy to a hungry old gull chasing him. I could be spending all this time learning to fly. There's so much to learn. It wasn't long before Jonathan Gull was off by himself again, far out at sea, hungry, happy, learning. The subject was speed, and in a week's practice he learned more about speed than the fastest gull alive. From a thousand feet flapping his wings as hard as he could, he pushed over into a blazing steep dive toward the waves, and learned why seagulls don't make blazing steep power dives. In just six seconds, he was moving 70 miles per hour, the speed at which one's wing goes unstable on the upstroke. Time after time it happened, careful as he was, working at the very peak of his ability, 
he lost control at high speed. Climb to a thousand feet, full power straight ahead first, then push over, flapping to a vertical dive. Then, every time, his left wing stalled on an upstroke, he'd roll violently left, stall his right wing, recovering, and flick like fire into a wild tumbling spin to the right. He couldn't be careful enough on that upstroke. Ten times he tried, and all ten times as he passed through 70 miles per hour, he burst into a churning mass of feathers, out of control, crashing down into the water. The key, he thought at last, dripping wet, must be to hold the wings still at high speeds, to flap up to 50, and then hold the wings still. From 2,000 feet he tried again, rolling into his dive, beak straight down, wings full out and stable from the moment he passed 50 miles per hour. It took tremendous strength, but it worked. In 10 seconds, he had blurred through 90 miles per hour. Jonathan had set a world speed record for seagulls. But victory was short-lived. The instant he began his pullout, the instant he changed the angle of his wings, he snapped into the same terrible, uncontrolled disaster, and at 90 miles per hour, it hit him like dynamite. Jonathan Seagull exploded in midair and smashed down into a brick-hard sea. When he came to, it was well after dark, and he floated in moonlight on the surface of the ocean. His wings were ragged bars of lead, but the weight of failure was even heavier on his back. He wished feebly that the weight could be just enough to drag him gently down to the bottom and end it all. As he sank low in the water, a strange hollow voice sounded within him. There's no way around it. I am a seagull. I am limited by my nature. If I were meant to learn so much about flying, I'd have charts for brains. If I were meant to fly at speed, I'd have a falcon's short wings and live on mice instead of fish. My father was right. I must forget this foolishness. I must fly home to the flock and be content as I am, as a poor, limited seagull. The voice faded and Jonathan agreed. The place for a seagull at night is on shore, and from this moment forth he vowed he would be a normal gull. It would make everyone happier. He pushed wearily away from the dark water and flew toward the land, grateful for what he had learned about work-saving low-altitude flying. But no, he thought, I am done with the way I was. I am done with everything I learned. I am a seagull like every other seagull, and I will fly like one. So he climbed painfully to a hundred feet and flapped his wings harder, pressing for sure. He felt better for his decision to be just another one of the flock. There would be no ties now to the force that had driven him to learn. There would be no more challenge and no more failure. And it was pretty just to stop thinking and fly through the dark, toward the lights above the beach. Dark, the hollow voice cracked in alarm. Seagulls never fly in the dark. Jonathan was not alert to listen. It's pretty, he thought. The moon and the lights twinkling on the water, throwing out little beacon trails through the night, and all so peaceful and still. Get down. Seagulls never fly in the dark. If you were meant to fly in the dark, you'd have the eyes of an owl. You'd have charts for brains. You'd have a falcon's short wings. There, in the night, a hundred feet in the air, Jonathan Livingston Seagull blinked. His pain, his resolutions, vanished. Short wings. A falcon's short wings. That's the answer. What a fool I've been. All I need is a tiny little wing. All I need is to fold most of my wings and fly on just the tips alone. Short wings! He climbed 2,000 feet above the Black Sea, and without a moment for thought of failure and death, he brought his forewings tightly into his body, left only the narrow, swept daggers of his wingtips extended into the wind, and fell into a vertical dive. 
The wind was a monster roar at his head. 70 miles per hour, 90, 120, and faster still. The wing strain now at 140 miles per hour wasn't nearly as hard as it had been before at 70, and with the faintest twist of his wingtips, he eased out of the dive and shot above the waves, a gray cannonball under the moon. He closed his eyes to slits against the wind and rejoiced. 140 miles per hour, and under control. If I dive from 5,000 feet instead of 2,000, I wonder how fast... His vows of a moment before were forgotten, swept away in that great, swift wind. Yet he felt guiltless, breaking the promises he'd made himself. Such promises are only for the gulls that accept the ordinary. One who has touched excellence in his learning has no need of that kind of promise.